what is the worst news that you could ever hear? What's the worst news you could ever hear? For some of the children in the room right now, news alert. Christmas canceled indefinitely. Can you even imagine? Some of the teens in the room, can you imagine somebody tells you the most embarrassing picture of yourself that you could ever imagine is being shared constantly to your entire social orbit, and you are mortified, and you are the laughing stock of your entire school. Well, more seriously, perhaps it's news that you've been diagnosed with a malignant tumor that is aggressively growing, and consequently, you should get your affairs in order because you, you don't have long at all. Or perhaps it's the policeman at the door informing you that a son or daughter has just been tragically killed in a fatal car accident. Or perhaps it's the news that a child you have longed for and prayed for for so long is no longer alive in the womb, and a miscarriage has taken place. Life is filled with agony and pain and, and broken hearts and injustices, but even these examples pale in comparison to the terrible news that the Apostle Paul, the author of Ephesians, must ground his readers in as the necessary backdrop to what God is consequently doing in the earth for the sake of His name and for the glory and fame of Himself. This backdrop is the reality of sin. Cornelius Plantinga writes the following in a book entitled, Sin, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. He writes this very insightfully, the awareness of sin used to be our shadow. Christians hated sin, they feared it, they fled from it, grieved over it. Some of our grandparents agonized over their sins. A man who lost his temper might wonder whether he should still take the Lord's Supper. A woman who envied her more attractive and intelligent sister might worry that this sin threatened her very salvation. But the shadow has dimmed. Nowadays, the accusation, you have sinned, is often said with a grin and with a tone that signals an inside joke. Slippage in our consciousness of sin, like most fashionable follies, Plantinga writes here, may be pleasant but it is devastating. Self-deception about our sin is a narcotic, a tranquilizing, a disorienting suppression of our spiritual central nervous system. And what is devastating about it is that when we lack an ear for the wrong notes in our lives, we cannot play the right ones or even recognize them in the performance of others. Eventually, we make ourselves religiously so unmusical that we miss the main themes, the main motifs God plays in human life. The music of God's creation and still greater, and the still greater main themes or the music of grace whistle right through our skulls, causing no catch of breath and leaving no residue. Moral beauty begins to bore us. And consequently, the idea that the human race needs a Savior sounds quaint. 
to avoid discussions of sin is to effectively declare that the life and the death of Jesus is irrelevant. For human sin is precisely why the Father had to send the Son. Our trajectory this morning through the text before us in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, will follow this pattern here. Well, very simply, verses 1 through 3 will note the worst news that you could ever hear. Progressing into verses 4 through 7, where we'll read the best news that you could ever hear. And culminating in the greatest purpose that you could ever receive. Before we go any further, let's submit our desires and our hearts before the Lord now. Father, for your glory, open your word. Cut us where we need to be opened up. Cut away that which we are idolatrously holding on to. And may we receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls. Give life to the dead this morning if that is what is in order. Purge from us what would most desperately need to be removed and work in us the grace of remembering our salvation through Christ alone. We pray this through Christ. Amen. After beginning his letter with a vibrant hymn of praise, honoring each member of the Trinity in their respective roles in salvation, Paul models then thanksgiving and prayer so well as Christ Jesus is exalted as head over all things. Having been raised by the Father, He has now been seated in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority. Paul writes, power and dominion. He concludes his first chapter sounding these things. But he now turns a sharp corner to the nature and the severity of humanity's default spiritual condition. So we read in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 of the worst news we could ever hear. Follow along. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The trespassing of God's laws and the sins against His moral decrees have rendered you, as Paul bluntly states, categorically dead. Now, dead in what sense, though? Dead, proverbially speaking, uh, perhaps like how the father in the parable of the prodigal son exclaims when his son comes back. He says, my son who once was dead is now alive again. In essence, saying my son who was, by all accounts, as good as dead is now back with me. No, there's no figure of speech happening here in Paul's mind. Spiritual deadness brought about by sin is the plight of all men and women who have ever and will ever live. Trespassing indicates our invasion into moral territory that we are barred from trespassing into. 
and sins indicate that, that missing of the mark, God's standard of holiness, and you and I continually fall short time and time again. In both of these aspects, we've gone where we shouldn't have gone, and we've fallen short of God's righteous standards. And the result? Spiritual deadness. But unlike a physical death, which makes good deeds as well as bad deeds impossible, dead people cannot serve anyone, nor can they kill anyone, there's just nothing. Not the case with spiritual deadness. There is still an animation, an energizing, but by all the forces that are opposed to God, a triumvirate of evil, if you will, the world, the devil, and the flesh are highlighted here in these verses. So how are these enslaving powers described in verses 2 and 3? We see here our walk, as Paul puts it, which is shorthand for saying your, your comprehensive moral conduct is one that followed the course of this world. So in other words, this is the collective witness of all those who unite to steer the course of human events in a God-diminishing and God-opposing manner. So that the mighty Mississippi that is humanity's moral current flows fast and hard in a singular direction toward the wrath of a holy God. And it is in this context that you and I are steeped day in and day out. How easy it can be for us to forget this, can't it? That we are and have always been, yes, in such different contexts for thousands of years, God's people find themselves, but always, to differing degrees, exiles. This is not home. This is not our home. This world's general trajectory is to wage war on God, whether knowingly or unknowingly. And it's up to us to believe this. Furthermore, we see of, of Satan, humanity's natural condition is also to follow the prince of the power of the air. Now, who is this and, and where is this, we might ask? Well, when comparing this phrase with other scriptural references, it seems pretty clear that this is Satan. Throughout all four of the Gospels, Satan is marked out as the ruler of this world or the ruler of the demons, especially by the Apostle John. Very similar language is used here. But what is the air that Satan exercises power over? What is that expression? Common Jewish expression in its day of the physical world around us, the sphere of Satan's influence the domain of darkness, as Paul writes in Colossians. But make no mistake, as the reformer John Calvin notes, he says, Paul does not allow Satan the highest authority. This belongs to the will of God alone. Satan's authority is merely a tyranny which God permits to exercise only for a time. Satan is also described here as the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
So whether this spirit is Satan himself or the product of Satan's influence, the meaning is the same. Satan is powerfully at work, not merely in this world, but in the sons of disobedience who have set themselves against God. So for us to believe anything other than this description is to delude ourselves to delude ourselves into thinking that Satan is a myth, his, his forces are not real, and sin is just an archaic way that societies and civilizations simply tried to curb bad behavior and, and bring order to their primitive religious notions. Something to that effect is what we hear quite often. But this is no myth. This is the battlefield on which we find ourselves, even now. How sobering it is for us to believe that the animating force at work in the hearts of the lost is Satan's powerful, deceptive, crafty, poisonous lies that seem to only metastasize in human hearts the longer a person lives. We see this third category of the flesh. There is this third reality Paul highlights in verse 3. A third color, if you will, to paint for us a vivid picture of the former bondage to sin, our flesh. So Paul ceases using the word you and begins using the word we as he writes here, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Our flesh is our fallen, self-centered human nature that opposes God's rightful reign over us in favor of whatever passions that, that we desire to have fulfilled. Paul writes, all Christians everywhere once lived lives in which they carried out the desires of the body. Not the natural desires such as food or sleep or even sex, but the sinful perversions of natural desires, such that the desire for food leads to gluttony, the desire for sleep leads to laziness, the desire for sex leads to lust. And Paul also mentions then the desires of the mind. And here again, not natural desires per se, but rather intellectual pride, selfish ambition, rejection of known truth, Malicious, envious, jealous, vengeful thoughts. At the end of verse 3, Paul doesn't leave an out for us that sin might be something limited to just volitional sin, sins of commission that we might do. But he writes that children of wrath have this category by nature, by nature. We're helped to consider a, a portion even of our, our own church's recently revised statement of faith. And I encourage you, actually right now, to read this aloud together. Recently completed, this focuses on the category of the fall. Let's read this together. We believe that although created sinless, Adam and Eve chose to follow Satan in defiance of their Creator 
In consequence of Adam's seminal rebellion, death and condemnation spread to all people, and all creation was subjected to a divine curse. Apart from God's intervention, every human being is, by nature, alienated from Him, remains under Satan's dominion, is corrupted in every aspect of his or her being, mentally, volitionally, emotionally, relationally, and stands under the sentence of death. The impact of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, would render every person a sinner by birth and eventually by choice. God's curse would be extensive and long-lasting, but it would not be the final word. Praise God. Just as God made a promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 that there would be one born of woman who would bruise the serpent's head, Paul is eager to announce the fulfillment of that promise in the work of Jesus Christ. Death, slavery, condemnation, only God could save us from such a bleak reality. And so He has. We turn our attention now from the worst news you could ever know about yourself and about the rest of mankind to now the best news that you could ever hear. In verses 4 through 7, radical problems require radical remedies. For the legitimate question has been asked, after all, what can a dead man do? The answer, stink. <laughs> Spiritual deadness has only one solution, resurrection. With this in mind, Paul continues in verses 4 through 5, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. But God, but God. The famous pastor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, said of this phrase, these two words in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. God's intervention is something that comes entirely from outside of us and displays to us that wondrous and amazing and astonishing work of God. Such divine intervention is nothing short of glory for those who are perishing. But what does this multifaceted gift of salvation entail? It's a gift that keeps on giving, if you will. One of those, oh, but there's more in the back type of gifts. God is giving us here the gift of beholding His character. It's going on display for us to know what He's been doing and where His heart has been demonstrating its grace and mercy. We see His heart is rich in mercy. The overlap and meaning in Paul's writings between mercy and grace and love is sometimes hard to distinguish. But here is a richness and mercy that combines with Paul's choice to be intentionally redundant in highlighting God's love. He says, because of the great love with which He loved us. These are the fibers holding up the bridge of God's rescue of sinners. 
we see God's heart is relentlessly loving. When God revealed Himself to Moses at Mount Sinai, He declared, the Lord, the God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is that same love now on full display. We see God's heart to redeem is not lessened by the severity of our sins. In the face of spiritual deadness, enslaved by Satan's lies, a broken world and our fleshly passions, God comes to resurrect the dead. We see His heart to make us alive with Christ. He makes that which is spiritually dead spiritually alive through the resurrecting power of His only beloved Son, Jesus Christ. The reformer and German monk Martin Luther is a classic example of what happens to a sensitive, well-meaning soul that wants to please God but is nurtured on the false, twisted understanding of the gospel. In Luther's day, grace was understood to be what God gives to well-meaning people as a sort of a moral boost to really help them in their efforts to please God. Justification and sanctification were collapsed and conflated such that it was not clear how one was made righteous with God. Much like our American concept that we hear, God helps those who help themselves, Luther became neurotic, for lack of a better word, in confessing to a priest every single sin that entered his conscience. And can we blame him? He was only obeying what had been declared by the Fourth Lateran Council, that only sins confessed to a priest would be forgiven. His anguish was over a very simple question, what does it take to be loved by God? That's it. What does it take? And it wasn't until Luther was pouring over Paul's letter to the Romans and could not get past the phrase, the just shall live by faith. Luther writes, night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped the justice of God is the justice through which grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Therein I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. Luther's experience is important for many reasons, but especially because it causes us, it demonstrates how easy it is to use the terms of the gospel, terms he had known since his youngest days, and yet to miss the foundational reality of what the gospel was. What a warning it is to all of us. Ephesians will leave no room for misunderstanding on the gospel. By grace, you have been saved. And we'll return to the role of good works in just a few verses here. But so what precisely has been accomplished for you through this gospel grace? What has been accomplished for you through this grace, fellow Christian? Verse 6 states, 
that you have been raised up with Jesus and seated with Jesus in heavenly places. And for what purpose? So that as verse 7 reads, that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. As Romans 6 states, for if you... If we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. God, through Christ, has regenerated spiritually dead people, making us united in Christ's death and resurrection, but also in His exaltation. For we have been seated in heavenly places, This is the same exalted position that God placed Christ at the end of chapter 1, as Paul tells us in verse 20. So this is to say that we share in some measure, even now, a co-occupancy with Christ in His position at the Father's right hand. What a thought. I mean, what a thought. What a humbling, staggering thought. None of us deserve this. And why does God do what He does? In many specific instances of life, we'll never know, right? God is not obligated to inform us of every small move that He makes in the course of human events. However, what He he was doing here is utterly clear. Verse 7 clearly states that God's ultimate purpose in saving a people for Himself was to display His grace for all to see, for the glory of His name forever and ever. His own renown, His own glory, His own majesty, His own fame, the redeemed, you and I are trophies of that grace. As we pondered humanity's desperate need, the worst news you could ever hear, And now we've seen God's matchless plan of redemption and the best news you could ever hear. Paul concludes this paragraph in verses 8 through 10 by recapping his central focus on grace and underscoring what it is not while emphasizing our present purpose. So what is this greatest purpose that you could ever receive? Verses 8 through 10, for by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're barely into the second chapter of an epistle that has six chapters, and this is the sixth mention of Paul by grace, of grace. And Paul, he will speak a hundred times in his letters of grace because he refuses to be pulled away from what is at the very center of the Christian gospel. Picking up on his earlier mention of this exact point in in verse 5, Paul adds the clarifying phrase, this is not your own doing. Let me be clear, this is not your own doing. 
It's been said that all the religions of the world share a common theme that operates something along the reality of, if I obey, therefore I'll be accepted. Therefore God or whatever higher power I'm living for will accept me if I conform my life to whatever mandates they lay out for me. That's essentially how all world religions operate. But it is only the gospel that turns the statement around so that God does the accepting first by His grace for no merit of our own so that He might transform sinners into producers then of good works that respond to God and neighbor in in selfless love. Do you find yourself ever being tempted to flip-flop on that? Perhaps you've been a Christian for quite some time, and the, the flagrant sinner, you know, the more obvious sinner that maybe you once were, or that version of yourself that you would have become, perhaps you were saved earlier on, is, has long since left your memory. Perhaps your most routine perspective of you, so not, maybe it's not even one you're, most, you're aware of, but it's, it's not that you are a sinner saved by sheer grace alone, a humbled recipient of God's free gift of mercy. But perhaps your most routine perspective of you is your track record of a respectable church member who faithfully participates and gives and attends and supports and serves and even leads in the assembly. All great things. But perhaps your most routine perspective and opinion and self-identity is of that, and you have drifted from who you once were, a sinner saved by grace. And that whatever God has been pleased to to work in you and through you for His glory is just that. You are just a channel. Service and sacrificial ministry should flow from an ever-deepening well of love for God's mercy. Verse 10 states that as God's workmanship, Christians are pre-programmed for good works. An honor that should bring no boasting, but only joy. So we display His grace while we dispense God's grace through good works. So how are you to think about good works? Are they bad? They're good. Imagine a situation that I think might help illustrate the right and the wrong way to conceive of of good works. Imagine for a moment a situation in which a a terrible accident claims the life of an entire family with the exception of a 16-year-old young man by the name of Ryan. Now, for his final two years of high school, Ryan lives in the home of a middle-aged couple. Let's call them the Williams. And the Williams were never able to have children themselves, but they are extremely wealthy. This couple embraces Ryan as if he's family and and supports him in countless ways, never extravagantly in order to create some sort of over-dependence, but in ways that are thoughtful and generous and work to shape and ready him for manhood and adulthood. 
Ryan can't quite believe their kindness to him, and he thinks to himself nearly every day how thankful he is for this new family that has shown him unconditional love and kindness, and he genuinely considers it a grace that he doesn't deserve. Well, several decades pass, and Ryan remains like a son to this now elderly couple whose health is failing. And one might wonder if Ryan would be gifted the majority of their seemingly endless net worth, but that never mattered to Ryan. He still dropped by frequently to visit with them and to run errands for them and to help them with light tasks and projects around their home and anything else that was needed. Well, one day while dropping by, Ryan noticed another vehicle leaving the driveway. And so he inquired about it and came to learn that it was a gentleman by the name of Steve. And Steve used to be an employee at the company that was owned by the Williams family. Steve would also, like Ryan, drop by all the time and seemed very interested in serving this family, almost too interested in helping them out. Steve came across quite willing to do anything he could to help, uh, but if they had to be frank, the Williams thought Steve was trying really hard to impress and to even work his way into their good graces. While Ryan and Steve would perform nearly identical acts of kindness week in and week out, it became clear that whereas Ryan was motivated by love, gratefulness, selfless service, Steve was a sycophant, a flatterer, and a leech, performing good deeds for self-serving ends, with the hopes of weaseling his way into being generously rewarded one day by this family after their passing. Similarly, God's free gift of salvation is so transformational that like Ryan, it renders the recipient of grace humbled and floored by God's mercy and kindness. And good works become the joyful, selfless, even celebratory act of honoring the love that had first been shown to them. On the contrary, like Steve, good works can easily become cloaked in a disguised way of thinking we're getting in good with God and scoring some serious points come judgment day. Well, brothers and sisters, we are God's workmanship, those who have been transformed internally by sheer grace. We are His hand-fashioned custom creation created in Christ Jesus for a purpose, for good works, to display the immeasurable greatness of His love for us in Christ. This is your great purpose as a redeemed son or daughter of God. Good works must flow freely from our lives, and if they are not, you should ask, why? What's going on? What might be clogging the line, so to speak? You must investigate, and perhaps taking the same advice that was given to Martin Luther by his mentor, Johann von Staupitz, when he told Martin, as he was neurotically confessing his sins, the smallest of things, he told him, you would do well to think less of yourself and more on the cross of Christ. Little did he know that would be seed to his recovering of the gospel. 
And what a thought it is that these good works, though, were prepared beforehand by God the Father that we should walk in them. I can't say I understand exactly how the mind of God thinks about this phrase precisely, but perhaps for you and I, there's an added layer of hope every time you cast down a wicked thought and in its place you yield to God's Spirit who enables you to be hospitable, to be sacrificial, to be loving, to be generous, to be forgiving, to be kind. And in that moment, know that Christ planned and purchased your ability to carry that out then and there. It's all grace, isn't it? It's all grace. And we have no room for boasting. Leo Tolstoy, regarded as one of the greatest writers of all time, he once wrote in his nonfiction work, A Confession, the following statement, My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? What should, why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus, is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? What an honest series of questions. Where can life's meaning be found? What is the purpose of your life? Well, maybe these are your questions this morning. And if they are, Ephesians chapter 2 is yours for the taking, and it's yours for the believing. What Paul highlights here and in scores of other places in the New Testament is our union with Christ. Life has no purpose outside of being united to Christ. It is only bondage to the world, enslavement to our sinful passions, and slavery to the devil who renders us spiritually dead. But by grace, through faith, you can be united with Christ, sharing in His death and His resurrection and His exaltation, and even sharing a purpose like His, namely to glorify the Father in all things. The Bible is clear that for one to know the joy of union with Christ, we must own the personal responsibility that is ours for every last one of our sins that we have committed against God. It cannot be shrugged off on anyone else or any other thing. And we should mourn these attacks that we have made on God's laws and His right to rule us. After all, He's our Creator. And we must then accept that God has exclusively forged redemption by grace alone, leaving no room for boasting since we didn't do a thing. Then it's believing by faith in all these precious promises as being extended for you. I'd encourage you to call out to Him soon, even today. 
And for those of us who know this is our story, this is the glorious gospel that has saved us, we find ourselves needing to apply and to touch down these truths very practically in our own hearts. First of all, would you grasp sins, devastation, and power? Let those verse three verses of chapter two settle on your soul. Grasp sins, devastation, and power. Find a warning there to what enslaves the rest of the course of this world and that it was you. Perhaps even when the unfortunate circumstance of church discipline is necessary in the life of our congregation, see that as a warning reminding you of the significance and the power and the danger of sin. We are called to walk circumspectly, vigilantly, watching for the inroads of sin. And what a motivation this is for even our witness. We have to be compelled at some level. If we know the significance and the reality of this sin, it must motivate us to share the best news someone could ever hear. Secondly, never tire of exulting in God's grace. Never tire of worshiping and relishing the grace of God to us. Paul's repetition even here is a, is a wonderful model for us. Sing, pray, exhort, edify, encourage, pray for your fellow Christians in the central importance of gospel grace. Do this. Allow it to be the hub of your life, that you're not, you're not much more than a sentence away from being able to tie back into a heart of gratitude for the grace and the mercy of Christ. Fight spiritual pride, as we've already mentioned, by rehearsing even these verses. And in God's providence, these were the verses that we had been memorizing and seeking to memorize over the past month or so together. So hopefully they're fresh on our hearts and our minds. A very similar and related idea, treasure your union with Christ. This is kind of a, not a catch-all, but a comprehensive category that many theological things fall under. But to know and to believe in union with Jesus Christ is absolutely vital to your spiritual health and your growth in Christ. Even how we fight sin, as Romans 6 says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So allow this theme to comfort you in times of failure, to assure you in seasons of doubt, to embolden you when courage is needed, and to provide hope when you've forgotten the benefits of your new life in Christ. And how often do we do that? We forget who we now are. And lastly, by God's grace, pursue grace generated. So the work of this sort of 
leading, that, that, that verse 10 necessarily follows in the logic Paul is laying out, pursue grace-generated good works. Remember even that simple tale of, of Ryan and Steve. Be watchful of the motivations of your heart. Are you seeking ulterior motives even in your ministry in this church? Think corporately and congregationally in this regard. What good works will edify the body? Not merely what good works will better my own spiritual condition, as necessary and helpful and good as those might be, but think collectively. How can this assembly be edified and built up and strengthened and God's mission here move forward? as you allow your life to dispense good works. Use the shepherds of this assembly and various ministry leaders to help refresh your thinking about your life and how it can be poured out in humble service, just as God prepared beforehand for you to walk in these things. And may, at the end of the day, God enlarge our passion for His glory and the joy that it is to dispense the grace that we have received and to humbly remind ourselves of God's extraordinary saving grace through His only Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we lift our hearts to You now, amazed at the regularity with which we forget this stuff. How can we move on from these glorious truths? And yet, Father, the busyness of life, the idols of this world, the delusions and the lies of Satan, they still affect us. We cry, how long, Lord? Come quickly. And yet we know what a thought that you have caused us to walk in good works that you have prepared beforehand for us. What a short life it is that we live. May you work your gospel grace in us to greater degrees and enlarge our passion for your glory this morning. In Christ we pray. Amen.